This is the Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and Uprocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. Today we're doing another installment of Contrarian's Canon with our old friend Wiley Walker. Now, if you aren't familiar with this series, this is where we look at records that have been maligned in history or, or forgotten. But uh, Riley and I love these albums and we want to talk about them and we want to make a case for them being records that you should care about. In previous installments, we talked about DC Talk their record, Jesus Freak. We talked about Pink Floyd's The Division Bell. And uh, did we talk about anything else? I'm blanking. Dave Matthews, did we do... Did the Dave Matthews, The Lily White Sessions, yeah. yes. How could I forget about Dave? This week we're going to be talking about Joni Mitchell and her record, Night Ride Home, from 1991. Now you may be asking yourself, why would you have Joni Mitchell in Contrarian's canon? Everyone loves Joni Mitchell. Everyone recognizes that Joni Mitchell is one of the great songwriters in modern music history, that she is a genius. Well, the thing is, with Joni Mitchell, when people talk about her, they tend to talk about the first 10 years or so of her career, which started in the late 60s and went into the late 70s. They talk about records like Blue. They talk about records like Court and Spark. They talk about records like The Hissing of Summer Lawns, which, by the way, I think is the greatest album title of all time. I love that album title. But Joni Mitchell has had a long career. She continued to make music into the 80s and 90s, as well as the 21st century. And that music doesn't get as much attention, even though there are records like Night Ride Home, which came out 15 or so years after her acknowledged artistic peak, and it signaled a rebirth for her. She actually had a really good decade in the 90s, putting out three really good records, three really good studio records anyway, and... um, she actually had a really good decade in the 90s, put out a bunch of really great records. Uh, her album in 94, Turbulent Indigo, won a bunch of Grammys and was actually pretty commercially successful. But we're not going to be talking about that record. <laughs> we're going to be talking about the record that came out before that and really kind of signaled the beginning of her comeback. And this has been a record that I've loved for a long time, and, and Riley's a fan of it as well. And we wanted to talk about it in this episode, and we also wanted to talk about the crop of baby boomer records that came out in the early 90s, like all of these you know, people from the 60s and 70s who were now middle age and had maybe gone into a period where they were being ignored, a lot of them had comebacks in the 90s. It's kind of an interesting era to talk about. You know, We're not going to talk about the cool music of that decade, the alternative rock and the gangster rap and all the things that we talk about in retrospectives. We're going to be talking about the, the yuppie <laughs> rock records, You know, the records that your, that your parents and maybe now grandparents were, were listening to in their minivans after they dropped you off at soccer practice. They were all back in the high life. <laughs> exactly. There's tons of actually really good records that came out of that time. You know, we, we always talk about Bob Dylan and Neil Young having a big era in the 90s, but you also had Joni Mitchell and 
and Jackson Brown and people like that that put out cool records at that time. So that's sort of a tangent in this episode. We're going to be focusing on Joni, uh, but you know we're we're going to be getting our sort of middle-aged rock on in this episode. So it's a really fun conversation, and I'm excited to get into it. But before we get to that, I, I would be remiss at this holiday season if I did not mention that I wrote a book this year. Derek, I'm going to make a plug now, by the way. I feel like there's a little bell issue. <laughs> My book is called Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. Now, if you listen to this podcast, you've probably heard me talk about this book already. But by some chance, if you're a Joni Mitchell stan and you're like tuning in to this podcast for the first time, I wrote this book. It came out in May. It's about the rise and fall of that classic rock generation that came out in the 60s and 70s and how I, as a member of Generation X, came to love a lot of those artists a decade or two or three after their peak, and how we are now in the midst of watching a lot of these people start to retire or to even pass away, and, and what that is like. You know, because I think a lot of people are like me. They they didn't grow up in the 60s or 70s, but they came to this music because they listened to the radio, and they came to love Led Zeppelin and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, and came to look at these people as sort of mythological figures that would be around forever. And of course, that hasn't been the case. So my book is about sort of grappling with that and the phenomenon of classic rock and, and how it changed the culture. So that book is out right now, and it is available for purchase wherever you buy books. And let me just say, it's a good stocking stuffer. It will stuff your stockings. It's, it's, it's sizable. So, you know, buy it, kick me a couple dollars make sure that my kids can be fed i would really appreciate it okay so that's the end of my self plug there let's get into the episode here's me and riley walker talking about the great Joni mitchell and her record night ride home so you just crossed the canadian border i just crossed the canadian border i'm a i'm a man outside of his home i'm lost in canada somewhere in a little town outside of london ontario looks like there's a pizza place and uh a really bad coffee shop. So, like, okay, so you're 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 like a big time rock and roller on the road. So I'm guessing that there's like all kinds of contraband that you had to smuggle across the border. Like, am I right? Oh yeah, we uh, we boofed it all. You know, we have tons of contraband. We're we're here to, I mean, uh, allegedly spread the wonderful uh, drugs and alcohol and free spirited things in America to Canada. Yeah. Well, that's what they're, that's, I mean, Canadians are going to pay to see rock and roll wild man, Riley Walker. I mean, that's what they want. So I think you, you can't shirk your responsibilities. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, there's a premium added onto it. So I, I make out like a bandit here with Canadian money. Well, what's the, so it's like you make more money there, like on the exchange rate. Oh, no, not at all. I was just saying for uh, contraband items, but you oh, know, yeah, yeah. shows are fun. I don't think I in particular do that well here, but it's always a joy to visit. Much love to our Canadian listeners right now. And you were um, you were just in Europe, right? Yeah, we just did a month-long tour in Europe all over. That was a blast, and I was home for a day, and we hit the road again. So, like, what's it like touring Europe versus the States? Like, do you prefer one or the other? Um, it's funny, you know, I had this conversation a lot. I think I've sort of become jaded. You know, there's people in this world and, you know, in my life, you know, my family even, you know, who would do anything to spend, you know, a week in Europe. But at this point, I'm just so jaded by it. And it's such a spoiled brat thing to say because I realize how lucky I am. But, you know, I think in general, Europe, I personally do better. I have uh, more of an audience there for whatever reason, whether that's press or 
They like guitar music more. I don't know. I don't particularly fit into any sort of American sort of slot. I don't have a huge fan base in America outside of big cities and stuff. So we do much better personally. And, you know, you get to eat a lot of really good food and there's a bit more cash over there. So that's nice. I mean, European listeners in general just seem more discerning. Like, I feel like in America, you're going to have to get like a face tattoo at some point if you want to be more commercial. That's my advice to you. Yeah, you know, and I think maybe the to boil it down to you know brass tacks. I think it's just a lot of times in Europe you're playing to an audience, where in America you play to a bar. Oh yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah, so like people just getting loaded in America, whereas in Europe they're sitting cross-legged on the floor and stroking their chins and taking it all in. The stereotypes are very true, and then you know you have a a nice glass of wine, and then you just go to the Louvre, and yeah. you know you fall in love and do it all over again. And you like you you, uh, you you straighten out your beret and your red handkerchief, and uh, I mean these are just like French cliches, really. It's not really true anywhere else. I was going to say like your yeah, black and, and white then, you striped know, I, shirt. Uh, I tell everybody like like oh nobody in America would get this. That's what I do. <laughs> Yeah, you like when you're over there, you just like trash Trump all the time, right? Like you just like make like super political because I think Europeans would like eat that up. You're an American, just talking I think about they it. do eat it up, but you know, I, I I try not to open my mouth on anything politically because I don't really have a smart idea and anything like that. I don't think people should look to me for any sort of uh, political discourse, dude. That has not stopped anyone else, my friend, <laughs> not having a smart <laughs> yeah. idea. So I'm just saying. So okay, well, let's get into it here. Enough with the chit-chat, because we have important things to talk about here. We're going to be talking about Joni Mitchell, Night Ride Home, 1991. And this was a record that I had in mind when I first started wanting to do these contrarian canons with you. And I remember you actually tweeted about this record once, and you called it one of your favorite Joni Mitchell records. And I thought that was really cool, because I was like, oh, I've always, I always thought that was a really good record, too. And you never hear anyone talk about it. And I was wondering, like, why this record has spoken to you, and why do you think it hasn't really, maybe, broken through when people talk about, you know, Joni Mitchell's legacy? Yeah, I absolutely love Night Ride Home. I think, you know, when I was a teenager, I got into Joni Mitchell, and Joni Mitchell was never really a, a household name in my house. I don't. I still feel like Joni Mitchell isn't quite. I mean, she's obviously you know one of the most beloved artists of her generation, but it's not like. Bob Dylan or Neil Young or, you know, Madonna or whatever, you know, it's like a pop star house name. You know, it's kind of like still feels like a cult figure to me. Right. And despite how big she is and, you know, again, how beloved she is. But I first got into, you know, Joni Mitchell Records, Horton Spark and Blue, Hitching of the Summer Lawns, all the classics. And about eight or nine years ago, I was at Reckless Records in Chicago and they were playing it, you know, this is one of those classic uh, situations where the record store employees are playing something you hear and you go, whoa, what is this? And the girl was working behind the counter and said, this is Joni Mitchell, Night Ride Home. Like super, you know, early 90s record verse. And I've always been drawn, in my adult life, I've always been drawn to, uh, like, great legacy artists like Dylan or Neil. I really like listening to their 80s and 90s catalogs. <laughs> right. And I love the classics and everything like that. But digging into, like, the period where they were kind of starting to become considered dinosaurs or, you know, like, the kids, the MTV generation kind of said fooey to these sorts of people. I love those records. It's these people, you know, even, like, Bruce Springsteen, Tunnel of Love. 
these people coming to terms with middle age, you know, having kids, moving on like it's a new chapter in their life. So their music always sounds different, and the subject matter always sounds different. And Night Ride Home in particular is just absolutely beautiful writing. It's because most of Joni's '80s catalog to me, it's kind of a bunch of stinkers. Not my thing. Right. I'm sure there's an argument to be had that there's some great songs stuff. It really doesn't do it for me. It's kind of corny. She went MTV on the record before it. Was it like a chalk mark in the rain? Yeah. A chalk mark in the rain. Yeah, that record is kind of. Yeah, exactly. And that record has like Don Henley and Peter Gabriel on it and all sorts of weird big it was just made to sell to kids. It was totally to me it just feels like a a PR pitch to you know, get Joni back in with the kids. But this record comes back and I think she was just like, Fuck it, I'm gonna make it's a really dark record. There's so much really intense personal subject matter on there. Larry Klein, you know, our producer and lover is all over it and does fantastic work. It's this sort of meditative cyclical songs you know it just feels really like it's the most mood record of hers since the 70s and you know, there's just a total mood it's a total lp front to back you know it's just a great listen so it's just i think it's a great mood record with you know very few pop songs it's really weird there's a lot of eight minute songs in there songs that keep going and the ratings are amazing i think it's just a super dark record it's like just like it says, Night Ride Home, it's just this really creepy record and really beautiful. Yeah. It's amazing. I love it. Well, you know, you and I have a similar thing where you were talking about how you like digging into the like 80s and 90s albums of, of these legacy artists. And, and that's been something that I've really liked doing myself, especially like in the last like five or 10 years. Because, you know, you hear about Joni Mitchell and obviously... Uh, you hear about the big records that she put out in the 70s. And, and I'm going to do a, a quick career synopsis in a couple minutes for people just to kind of catch you up to where she was when she made Night Ride Home. But obviously, you know, Blue is such a big record for her. And like Court and Spark was like kind of her big pop record. And then there's like Hajira and all those albums that she made in the 70s that are that are really well known. And I remember like Night Ride Home was just one of those albums that like I would always see like you know, like in UCD stores or something. Like you'd go to see, like, well, I want to get a Joni Mitchell record, and it would. The only record they'd ever have is like Night Ride Home. So, okay, so finally, you're just like, well, this is, it's only like you know two dollars, so I'll buy Night Ride Home, not really expecting much, and it ends up being this like really great record that actually sounds more like her '70s stuff than I was expecting. I I thought it would be more, like you were saying, talking about her '80s stuff. She definitely kind of fell into that trap at times of trying to make records that sounded more contemporary. It was kind of like this weird thing like where she was making like really experimental records at times and then other times like these really kind of glossy pop sounding records and it was never really that effective either way for her. And then she comes out with Night Ride Home which to me like the guitar sounds on this record it sounds like Kajira and like the bass sounds kind of sound like Kajira and that's my favorite Joni Mitchell record from from seventy six. Oh, you're a Hajira fan. Oh yeah, are you a Hajira fan? That's a great record. Uh, I like it. There's there's some you know doesn't do it for me completely. I wouldn't say it's my favorite, but I, I dig it. Of course, yeah, it's great. So it kind of reminded me of that. So that that got me into the album. But you know, you and I were talking uh, about how we're we're big fans of like the baby boomer rockers at this time, like in the early '90s, like having like a renaissance, like all at around the same time making these like really great sort of like adult contemporary records that like 
middle-aged people would listen to like in the minivan like when they drop their kids off at school or something you know <laughs> like not ever anything I was listening to at the time when these albums were coming out like because I wouldn't have appreciated them but now I totally do and obviously you know we talk about like Bob Dylan and Neil Young having like a renaissance in the 90s you know, like Neil had uh, Ragged Glory and Harvest Moon and all those albums and then Dylan had those two folk records he made and then of course Time Out of Mind a few years later uh, but then there's like Van Morrison, his records at that time, like Hymns of the Silence in, in particular. Like I just wrote a big thing for The Ringer about Van Morrison's like albums at this time. And like Hymns of the Silence is like one of my favorite Van Morrison records. I don't know if, uh, do you get into that record? Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm a huge fan of all, all Van Morrison up to like what he came out with last week. I'm pretty insane for the guy. Yeah, he's great. And then, one record that you and I really love that we were talking about is like that Jackson Brown record, I'm Alive, that came out in 93. And also I got to do a shout out to John Ross from the band Wild Pink because he actually helped turn me onto this album because it's like one of his favorite albums of all time. So I was like, oh, I got to, I was already a Jackson Brown that, fan, but I never listened to it until he recommended it. And I was like, this is awesome. Yeah, and I mean, I think these records just kind of fit in perfectly with you know, my childhood, because my parents were big fans of, you know, Joni Mitchell, Jackson Brown, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, they still bought everything that they came out with up until, you know, the mid-90s when, you know, CDs were just on fire. Everybody's buying CDs like crazy. And so I, I kind of put these, you know, you mentioned a record like um, I'm Alive by Jackson Brown. My friend and I were talking about that record because, you know, I told him I was doing this podcast, we're going to probably bring that up. He's like, that's like the middle console of an early 90s car that you grew up going to school in, like the CDs your mom had in the middle console of a car, you know? Right. It's like that collection of CDs sort of like shapes your youth. And Jackson Brown, I'm Alive, is one of them. And those people still had tons of money coming to them, you know, in the late 80s and early 90s. Somebody like Jackson Brown, I'm sure he got $10 million to make that record, and it sounds like it. And the kids then were definitely not to Jackson Brown. It's not like it's 1976 and, you know, there's a college dorm where people have Dr. My Eyes on or anything anymore. People wanted to hear motherfucking Pearl Jam or whatever. (laughs) So this guy releasing a record then, it's just, he's selling it to his fans from back then. I don't think he thought or could even get new fans. And the other thing is like the Eagles around that time, it like hell freezes over. So it's this big renaissance of, you know, all the, L.A. and Berkeley bands are coming back together, you know, the big pop radio bands. And I'm Alive is amazing. I think the songwriting is incredible. The title track is really beautiful. And that song, Waiting for You, all the vocals on it. So, yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Jackson Brown, I'm Alive. And it's kind of similar, I feel like, to this Joni Mitchell record, Night Right Home, in that he made this Back to Basics record after making these very 80s-sounding albums. And I actually like a lot of his 80s records. Um, but they're definitely very specific to the time. And then he made I'm Alive, which uh, he was working with Scott Thurston, who was in The Heartbreakers. Like, he was one of the producers on that album, and it kind of sounds in that kind of Tom Petty vein a little bit, like, like on that record. There's, like, a big drum sound on that album. and Yeah, it's it, like a Wildflowers thing, minus the Rick Rubin sort of element to it. Right, and... I feel like Joni was doing a similar thing around this time where it's like, okay, I'm just going to kind of bring it back. And I've read interviews that she did around then. And, you know, Joni Mitchell, you know, one, I mean, one of the things I love about 
you know, like the geniuses of this era of like, you know, the 60s, 70s era is that they're all like cranky people and they're all kind of petty, <laughs> like angry people, yeah, especially as they like get older. Yeah, kind of not warm people or not easy to work with. Which to me, I love, I mean, to me, it just makes them seem more human to me. Like, I, I kind of love that, like, oh yeah, no, they're, they're not, you know, they're very real. Like, they're not putting up a front. It's like they... You know, people tell them that they're geniuses all the time, and they're like, "Yeah, I'm a genius. Like, I, I agree with you, and I don't have patience for people that aren't geniuses." And Joni Mitchell, like, is second to none in that regard. I mean, she had a very high regard for her own talent, which you know she should. I mean, she's earned it. Uh, but uh, she was talking about how on Night Ride Home, this was like the beginning of her sort of making records in more of her kind of classic style, and you know, like in interviews, she kind of like is somewhat grudging about it. Like, okay, like, I guess I have to do this because I'm not selling records otherwise, or no one cares about me. So, you know, I'll give the people what they want. I'll keep, you know, I'll get back to writing amazing songs that are like <laughs> stripped back and, and sound great. And, you know, cause that's what people want from me, I guess, you know, uh, I, I just find that hilarious, <laughs> that kind of attitude about it. Oh yeah, Jody definitely holds herself in high regard and definitely hates looking back on the past. It seems like, I mean, Neil Young has his archive series and stuff, and I think Neil's a guy who kind of likes to look back on. I mean, he had that song, you know, from Hank to Hendrix or whatever. That's like there's a lot of like nostalgia involved. Like the older he gets, and one 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 of the things that annoys me sometimes about artists who are aging and they play records, I really hate the whole like, hey, let's look back on the good old days element their music you know yeah and like when a band like when a band's whole new records about hey guys like man the last 30 years have been a real thrill i i like when artists keep going forward and joni mitchell's always one of them and neil neil pulls it off really well he's the best at writing about you know the past and looking back on it and looking on it with you know a new set of eyes and being older and wiser or whatever but, you know dylan and joni to me are always just like they continually have you know, insane shit going on in their heads that they're always happy to write about. And Bob Dylan doing, you know, Frank Sinatra covers or whatever. That's another story. Right. You know, Joni, the lyrics on Night Ride Home are contemporary to her life as, you know, a 40-something, almost middle-aged or whatever. And there's like the song on there, Cherokee Louise, I guess, looks back. And that's like the darkest song. Yeah. And she has tons of dark subject matter, but that song's about, you know, some sort of like, the sexual assault on like a child from her past that she remembers and it's incredibly harrowing and it's incredibly tranquil and just kind of shocking to listen to when you know the the melody of the song and the range of the song itself is so gorgeous but her singing you know like you know Cherokee Louise like it's just like such a haunting melody and it just really puts you in a time and place and there's just like a lot of fucked up shit that Joni's seen you know her life story is pretty wild you know she saw did a ton of crazy shit and i think this record is kind of her approaching middle age and not looking back on the past definitely still innovating stuff but just everything is sort of culminated and she wants to get it out and maybe find some sort of peace with the past because you know a lot you know you think about a song like a free man in paris off court and spark that's just about you know finding love and you know getting out david geffen finding love or whatever and this you know, this new era of her life where she's approaching middle age, you know, friends are dying, friends are getting older, things aren't the way they used to be. It's just incredibly harrowing, and it's it's a really beautiful, insane lesson. Well, 
Let's set up this record here. I'm going to do a brief career synopsis. We'll talk about how she got to the night ride home. Uh, she put out sure. she puts out her first record in '68. Uh, it's called "Song to a Seagull." It's produced by David Crosby, and it's essentially like a voice and guitar record. And Joni Mitchell at that time was very much in the vein of like jo- of, of Joan Baez and Judy Collins. A lot of the sort of like f- female folk rock singers, or f- actually not even folk rock, just folk singers of the '60s. And she's talked about how at that time she was kind of passe, like like that archetype of a singer was coming out of fashion by the end of the 60s. It was, it was much more about sort of acid rock and psychedelia and all that stuff. And But she works in that mode for her first probably three or four records culminating with Blue, which comes out in 71 and is widely considered like maybe the greatest singer-songwriter record of all time, or at least like it's in the conversation. Certainly the art, you know, the, the sort of archetype of a person writing autobiographical songs about their life and, and you know, exposing their, their heart to the world. You know, Blue is the quintessential example of that. That and maybe like Blood on the Tracks by Bob Dylan. Um, it's huge. It's one of the big, yeah, one of the biggest statements ever recorded. And I, I, NPR did a list of like uh, the greatest albums made by women ever in 2017 and blue was at the top of that list. So it's still like widely regarded, but you know, it, you can't really segregate it as like a great album made by a woman. It's like one of the great albums period ever of, like, of the last 50 years. Uh, so that is the beginning. I think of like her really sort of like incredible period. Like to me, like the period from blue, which is in 71, to Hajira, which comes out in 76. Like, there's five records in there. Blue, For the Roses, Cord and Spark, The Hissing of Summer Lawns, and, of course, Hajira. Five-album stretch. You know, she's probably, like, along with, like, Neil Young and, you know, maybe David Bowie or something. Like, she is, like, the artist of the 70s at that moment in time. Like, are are you a fan of all those records? Oh, I love them. Yeah, they're fantastic. Do you have a favorite out of those, like, like, what would be like your your number one Joni record? Uh, number one Joni record, I like uh, hissing a whole lot. That's got to be my favorite. It's just, it's such a thrill. I don't know. I find so much in it. It's, it's just a fine. I'm a big fan of like Laurel Canyon folk. Yeah, that whole school of folk music, and that just perfectly defines it for me. It's probably the best of the lot. If you pick, you know, the five best Laurel Canyon folk records, that's probably the best one ever. Cord Spark is great, but that's that's probably a close second or third. It's just that's like a huge pop record, and it makes more sense for a pop. But you know, defining an era of music, I think you know. Absolutely, it's, and it's just and like and during this period too, she's starting to get jazzier and more experimental. Like so, not the sort of quintessential folk singer with a guitar on stage. Now she's working with jazz musicians. She's starting to delve into world music. Uh, the music is getting you know much more sophisticated during this stretch, and people seem to believe that she starts to lose the plot with her '77 record, Don Juan's Reckless Daughter. It's a double record, uh, and that has like just scores of like actual like great jazz musicians playing on that record, including like Jacko Pastorius and Wayne Shorter plays on that album. Um, I actually like that record, although I don't put it on a whole lot. Like there's that 16 minute improvised song. Uh, what was that? Uh, Paprika Plains. Um, yeah. 
which is like kind of just like a crazy song, like orchestral. It's also like a whole concept record too, like in the vein of the Who, Tommy. There's like a it's based on a character, and just kind of goes throughout the life of this character and the fucked up shit they had. Yeah, it's just it's a huge, it's really bloated concept, but it, it has its moments. So like, how do you feel about that album? Are you like kind of hit or miss on it? Do you do you like it? Do you dislike it? I dig the band. I gotta say, I mean, Jody's probably my favorite singer ever, but her vocals just kind of go off the rails too much for me. Right. I really love the band, though. I mean, there's like, I mean, that's like Yako and Wayne Shorter, much the Weather Report crew. Larry Carlton plays guitar in the song. He's my favorite guitarist. The band is like killing, and Joni's killing that too. It's maybe just a slight misstep in the discography, though. That's definitely where it kind of, yeah, loses the plot. That's a good way to put it. But Mingus, the next record from '79, I think is one of my favorite Joni Mitchell records. See, that's interesting. It. That's interesting. Because, like, uh, and, I, and I should mention, too, Don Juan's, uh, uh, the, the Don, Juan, Don Juan's Reckless Daughter, uh, she's in blackface on the cover of that record. So, <laughs> Oh, yeah. That, that, that's an insane cover. So. You should probably lead with that when talking about that album. It's sort of like, okay. That, and and that, was actually, that was her last album to go gold, too, as well. Because, like, you mentioned Court and Spark being her pop record. You know, that album goes double platinum. Um, you know, it's it's this huge critical favorite. I think it topped the Paz and Jop list for the Village Voice that year. Big commercial hit. So she's kind of at her like peak with Court and Spark, and then by Don Juan's Reckless Daughter, she's like kind of driven into a ditch commercially. And then with Mingus, totally confounds people. She's actually working with Charles Mingus on that record, and for me, that record's a mess. But you're 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 a big fan of that record. I dig it. I mean, just again, like I'm a big liner notes guy. I'm a, I, like John McLaughlin's on guitar. Tony Williams is on drums. Uh, St- like Stanley Clark, like all these great like jazz and fusion greats are on it. So I mean, I kind of dig into the record maybe more. It does sound insane, but you know, I'm such a fan of all those players. So to think about all these people in a room together playing with Joni Williams is amazing to me. I, I love the backstory. It's just. It's really like experimental record. It's insane. And there's apparently just like shitloads more from those sessions that's never been released. So I, I don't think Joni's very big on box sets, but I'm hoping for a box set of that era of some sort. Because there's just, you know, in the vein of Weather Report, there's just tons of improvised sections. And I love when artists kind of go off the rails and lose their mind. Oh, yeah. Again, I mean, Port and Spark, which is so beloved and seen as a perfect record, Topped every list and tops every list now for good reasons. It's a great record. So I think with that, she's just like, I have all the creative freedom in the world. I have all the cash. I need to make records. I'm going to get, you know, motherfucking Tony Williams, guy who plays with Miles Davis, John McLaughlin, the most shredding far out guitarist of our time. So I really like her intentions behind it were just to, like, you know, fuck with the pop audience. I, I dig that a whole lot. Yeah. And I mean, and I just love the songs. They're great, too. I, I think they rule. Like, it's just such a weird, bizarre record. You know, like, you know, we, we, there's like weird raps on there, too. Or whatever. It's like, <laughs> right. Hey, I'm doing this, you know, it's bizarre. I mean, you know, we're talking about like the early 90s here being an interesting period. I mean, the late 70s for that generation was also, I think, really interesting because it's like they all kind of went off the rails at the same time. Like, you know, you have Joni Mitchell making these like really ambitious kind of train wrecky albums. You have like Bob Dylan. He goes Christian. Desire. Well, no, well, that was like 76. I mean, like, I'm talking like 78, 79. That's like when Dylan went Christian. What like, was Neil Young's 78, 79 record? I mean, he was like, I mean, Neil was like hitting a new peak. I mean, that's like Russ Never Sleeps. Yeah, and, I mean. 
So it doesn't really apply to him, but like like Leonard Cohen made Death of a Ladies Man with Phil Spector, like a famously just coked out record. Oh yeah, yeah. You have like the Beach Boys Love You, which is like just a totally bizarre, you know, Brian Wilson writing songs about Johnny Carson. You know, just like yeah, the, there's a sweet spot for legacy artists in like '78, '79, and '92 through '94 that I think that's a coffee table book by you one day, my friend. <laughs> you know, I, there's something interesting about those eras, uh, those specific years of legacy artists. So we get into the '80s with Joni. Joni, she only put out three records in the '80s, and like one of them, like Wild Things Run Fast, that's like her new wave record. It's kind of like the most like rock, like the hardest rocking album she's ever made, which. With Joni Mitchell, it's like not it's necessarily. It's so dollar good. bin, man. It's like the most dollar <laughs> bin. It's in every single dollar bin I've ever looked through in every record store. It's not. There's a couple good songs. It's not that good though. And then you get Dog Eat Dog, which is like her kind of like angry political record that comes out in '85. And then Chalk Mark and a Rainstorm, which you mentioned before, came out in '88. And you know she she wasn't that well regarded during this time. You know, I mean, all of those. Again, those boomer-era artists, they kind of hit a wall in the 80s at the same time. But, but I think it was harder on Joni probably than most. You know, there's that story where she was playing like that Amnesty International concert in 1986, like a giant stadium. It's like a big famous concert that like U2 and the police headlined. And Joni played a bunch of songs from Doggy Dog and like the crowd booed her. <laughs> you know, oh, damn. Because it, it was like this rock and roll audience and Joni's trying to play these like socio-political you know, diatribes, uh, very sophisticated songs, and, you know, this, this like, 70,000 drunk dudes out there who just want to hear, you know, every breath you take. So she had a hard time. People weren't paying Joni her proper respect in the 80s. I mean, that's the thing about Chuck Mark and a Rainstorm. The reaction to Doggy Dog was pretty negative. So she went to, like, a pop audience, and, like, you know, she was hanging out with uh, Peter Gabriel. I think she records a record at Peter Gabriel's recording studio while he was doing so. So she had, like, you know, access to all these crazy synthesizers and futuristic mixing boards and what have you. But then, like, Billy Idol's on the record, so I think she's, like, just reached a little too much. I can't stand Billy Idol, personally. Well, is, and Tom Petty's on it, too. Tom Petty does backing vocals on a song or two, I think. I don't remember which one. I wonder, because, you know... Like, you know, all these, like... Well, they were all on Geffen Records. I wonder if Billy Idol was on Geffen Records. Because, I mean, you know, because Joni and David Geffen had a longstanding relationship. And I know P Peter Gabriel and Don Henley were obviously on Geffen Records at that time. So I wonder if David Geffen was just, like, on the on the horn calling up people, being like, we got to modernize Joni He's Mitchell definitely here. calling in favors. <laughs> so, that, so we finally now get to Night Ride Home. And it was a record that I, I, it was pretty well received at the time. Um, I think people felt like it was her best record in a while, although she didn't really have like a full-fledged comeback until her next record, Turbulent Indigo. Like I think that album sold better, and it won Grammys. And Night that Run record is also so amazing. Anybody listening to this, like that record is surreal. That's another podcast. Yeah, she had. I mean, she really came back strong at this time. Um, although, again, I don't feel like she got quite as much shine as like Neil Young did at this time for his comeback, or, or you know, or what Dylan did later on. Um, kind of speaking, I think, yeah, I mean, like Pearl Jam and Nirvana were like name dropping Neil Young all the time because of the ripping ass guitars. I just don't know if Joni Mitchell had like a young sponsor at the time. Obviously, she was still held in high regard as one of the greats. But I don't think she had like some sort of 
young band being like, oh, we rap Joni Hart, you know, like in the in the van, we're always listening to Court and Spark. You know, I, I just don't think it was <laughs> the time was sort of like uh, for her music. Then. Well, and, you know, in this, I think there was also another thing, and you spoke to this earlier, that uh, yeah, I think Neil Young, you know, just to make a comparison, like he, he I think, very deliberately positioned himself with younger bands at that time. Like he was touring with Sonic Youth and, you know, he made the record with Pearl Jam, obviously, and people were calling him the godfather of grunge, which seems totally ridiculous now in retrospect. But like, you know, he, he was kind of aligning himself with with youth at that time, whereas Joni Mitchell, I think, had the confidence to say, you know, I'm 47 years old. I, I, I don't really want to speak to kids. I want to speak to people my age and I want to, uh, write about what it's like to be my age, and it, it, that's something I think I wouldn't I wouldn't have been prepared to appreciate when I was a teenager and these albums first came out. But now that when I listen to them, I, I really I really like it. I, I can really glean something from it. Um, but I mean, I think that was really ahead of its time. I mean, because I mean, this really was like the first generation, certainly at least like in rock music, you know that you know, they were in their forties and fifties and that they were, they weren't trying to act like they were kids. You know, I think that's probably more common now, but at the, you know, in in 1991 to make an album like this, I think it was still fairly unique. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've been wondering what it is about these sorts of records now that we've come to appreciate. I mean, obviously time can, you know, be the healer of all things. People like look back. You know, there's so many conversations about Bob Dylan's time out of mind. I'm sure at the time, like it was a big deal. I mean, he won, won a Grammy for it and shit, and it sold really well. You know, as time goes on, there's like all this sort of like, hey, let's reconsider everything. You know, and reconsidering an artist like Joni Mitchell's catalog from the '90s and late '80s or whatever. And it seems to be this conversation happens more and more and more. Uh, you know, people, I saw somebody defending, like, Neil Young's, like, what's that record where he's wearing the pink tux, Everybody Rock or something? Uh, yeah, every, Everybody's Rockin', like the Rockabilly record? Yeah, you know, those people are like, no, I'll go to bat for that. Seems, <laughs> that's just in music conversation in general, is going to bat for something. You know, and, and I like that that's coming back, you know, sort of like defending the underdog record. And, you know, I'll go to bat for Tony Mitchell, Night Ride Home anytime. It just seems like, on these 80s records that were so excessive, you know, a 12-person band, a horn section, production out the ass, millions and millions of dollars spent to make the biggest sound record. This is a total comeback record, which she's absolutely perfect. It's just as big as Joni Mitchell's music is, and as grand as the themes of the songs are, and as grand as the music itself is, I think she has this really wonderful sort of minimalism to the music. I mean, it's just like there's just sort of this tranquil thing and just a simple phrase can kind of just make a universe, you know? It's just such a... She opens so many doors with such little passages. And I think this record is perfect at that. Even yeah. like the title Night Ride Home just opens up so much imagery to me personally in my mind. Yeah, I mean... The, and the guitar... Yeah, and the guitar playing on here is just like the acoustic guitars at the front of the mix again like her older records are. It's And she's playing... I think her... Right hand on the acoustic guitar is some of the best shit she's ever laid to track. I think her guitar playing on this record is honestly probably first or second best fucking playing on any record. It's amazing what she's doing. And the, she's well known for using like crazy sort of guitar tunings like 
Sonic Youth or John Fahey or whatever, but she totally wrote the book on these sort of new insane tunes that are just like so tuned so low, you know, kicking, you know, the, the low string on the standard tune guitars in E and like putting it down to an A, which is, you know, super low sounding slack tune. It just sounds like the guitar could fall apart every time she's playing it. Yeah. So I think there's like a lot of innovation going on here. And, you know, her guitar playing is somewhat similar to like, you know, John Martin or something like that, I guess would be the only comparison I could make. But yeah. it's just so uniquely Joni. And I think her guitar playing is just better than ever. Her songwriting is as sharp as it's been in years and years. And it's like a total bold statement. I think she just kind of, I don't want to call it a, you know, a, a circus of the 80s or anything that like was all performative. I think she meant every bit of it. She's a very serious and deliberate and calculated artist. You know, this is the first time she just kind of sat back for a long time, just had a small band, you know, a quartet, minimal production. Let's get in and out of the studio. Let's make, you know, let's have rough takes on there. Let's just have the band as it used to be. You know, it's like quit the bullshit, quit the party. Yeah, I mean, I think with, with, with Joni Mitchell, and I mean, this definitely comes across when whenever she talks about like her peers, is that, I mean, she really was more musically sophisticated than like a lot of people of her generation, certainly like some more than like someone like Bob Dylan, who and I mean this in the best possible way, but there's something, you know, pretty primitive about his musicianship and, and certainly in the way that he presents his songs. Like he's very deliberately, you know, recording first, you know, putting on first takes and not even teaching the band the songs, you know, just trying to kind of get some sort of vital spontaneity on his records. Whereas Joni Mitchell is this really, you know, like well pedigreed musician and she, takes pride in the music, the musicianship of her records. And, you know, sometimes that sophistication, I mean, it adds so much to her songs, but sometimes it can take away a little bit when she loses the plot on some of her records. And I think you, you just stated it really well, that this record does have a lot of sophistication on it, but there is also that sort of inherent sim- simplicity in how this is all presented, where like a song like the title track, which is the first song on the record, is this beautiful song, basically a love song, kind of, I mean, it unfolds like a vignette, like where she's, it's almost like she's remembering like this great memory that she had where she was really happy and she was with someone that she loved. And there's this great thing on the song where like, uh, I assume that it's like actual crickets that they recorded, but like the crickets are almost like the rhythm track of the song. Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. It's like some sort of, you know, field recording is the backing track and like the band it's it hasn't again like Joni Mitchell is one of my favorite people of all time at creating an environment on a record and from this is you know just case in point of a mat the master she is and, this opening track is minimal her guitar and crickets it's great and you would think like you know how do you do that I mean that's such a complicated thing if you really think about it like just, just to make that work but when you hear the song you feel like you are in the car or you are walking with her like as she's recounting this memory like it's a it's a, an incredibly evocative uh song and 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 the way it's presented um and that really sets the tone for the rest of this record which has i think some really great love songs on it and then it also has songs like you were talking about like you mentioned uh Cherokee uh, uh Louise which is this you know, she's talking about a memory from her childhood where she knew someone that was sexually assaulted. You know, this incredibly dark uh, subject matter. Um, 
I don't know if you know this, like there's this song on there called The Windfall, <laughs> which is the song after uh, Cherokee Louise, and supposedly yeah, that yeah. song is inspired by uh, uh, her housekeeper, because apparently jo- Joni Mitchell, uh, she got into an altercation with her housekeeper where she like kicked her housekeeper in the shins, and then her housekeeper sued her, I think for like $5 million. And, Holy shit. <laughs> but the housekeeper didn't didn't win, didn't win the lawsuit. Because apparently Joni Mitchell, like, she insisted that this housekeeper w- was stealing from her, which who knows if that's true. I feel like rich white ladies always say that their housekeepers are stealing from them. So let's take that for a gr- with a grain of salt. However, she ended up writing the song The Windfall <laughs> on this record about kicking her housekeeper in the shins and, like, how her housekeeper was trying to, like, take all her money away, basically, because of that. So, I love that she wrote. Well, this I hope they. Song. I hope they worked it out and everybody's, you know, at peace now. We got a great song out of it though, so maybe she did. Mitchell should be kicking more people in the shins. I was gonna say, you know, maybe one day you'll be rich enough where you can kick your housekeeper in the shins and then write a song about it. I think that would be. Yeah, right. I like that. Your your art is inspired by kicking a person. What else? Uh, what other songs on the record jump out to you as as personal favorites? Uh, dude, the centerpiece is coming from the cold. I think that's one of my five favorite Joni Mitchell songs in general. It's like a seven-minute opus. And Joni, like, again, like this is like such a guitar-led record. Her guitar is just crushing on this. And the vocals, she does backing vocals that are just really cyclical, you know? Like, again, like on that song, Cherokee Louise, she'll be like, Cherokee Louise. And it's just like the beautiful backing vocals on here. Like the overdubs of vocals she does are some of the best. And Joni Mitchell's always been you know, Dylan's the guy who's just like, Here's my here's my rusty voice, I'm not gonna do a bunch of backing vocals for the most part. But Joni Mitchell's always you know, she's a studio wizard as much as she is live. So the multi tracking and like how minimal it is, you know, just in the vein of you know, it, uh, just uh, having double track vocals and triple track vocals that just like are so haunting. It just it feels like when you listen to it on headphones and close your eyes, you're just like at the center of a small room, you know, with sort of incense. And coming from the cold is just like an absolutely really beautiful love song. There's, there's like that line, it's like, I feel your legs under the table, leaning into mine. I feel renewed. I feel disabled. It's just like by these bonfires in my spine. It's just her writing is just so beautiful on this. And I think, you know, it's, it's no longer like young puppy love or, you know, kind of looking towards the future love. It's just like, these are our lives now and this is all I've ever wanted sort of love. It's just writing from an older age and just, it's just so fucking wise and gorgeous. Well, she kind of like, coming from the cold is one of my favorites. She's kind of like writing about her own personal history of like sexual attraction basically in that song. Cause like at the beginning she talks about like, like in 1957, I was at, uh, yeah, she talks about being at a school dance and like how they would like measure the distance between the people. So oh then, yeah. So then all it t- between like the boys and the girls when they were dancing. So then all you had to do was like touch fingers and like you'd feel electricity. You know, like that's like in the first verse of that song. Again, like incredibly evocative writing. And then you have, uh, like you said, this beautiful music. You know, the thing about the vocals on that song, it always kind of reminds me of uh, like Enya, Orinoco flow a little bit. You know, just like the sure. way the vocals are arranged, it's like kind of has like a new agey thing to it. That uh, it's like a new agey, jazzy type hybrid or something, like in the chorus of that song. And it works really well. Um, again, like not something I would have appreciated 
at the time, I would have listened to this record probably, if I had heard this record in 1991, I would have just thought, oh, this is like so middle of the road or so adult contemporary, you know, or so smooth sounding. But I mean, now I can listen to it and appreciate just the level of skill that it takes to pull off a song like that, you know, and like... It's funny how, like, the adult contemporary sound of a lot of those sorts of records by these sorts of artists, I think at the time, people were definitely turned off by it, but they've aged, like, way better for me, personally. Like, when I hear Night Ride Home or Tunnel of Lover, I even like, you know, Bruce Springsteen's, like, Lucky Town, like, the adult contemporary, like, okay, old man, go yell at a cloud, you're, you know, you're not cool enough to you know, hang out with Black Flag or whatever. Uh, those records have aged, like, you know, just aged beautifully over the years, I think, for me. And I think a lot of people are taking notice of that. There's some cornball production stuff. There's, like, big snare sounds that, you know, sounds like Phil Collins, you know, fucking, like, some of the drum sounds could be corny, but for the most part, like, this tranquil adult contemporary, uh, Enya might be a good example of it. It's really kind of coming to its own over the years, cause, mostly because so much indie rock now looks back to those sorts of sounds. You know, any sort of like sort of synth pop band now just like looks back to those adult contemporary sounds and the sorts of inspiration. Maybe because they grew up around it. You know, those people who knew what they were doing at the time. Sometimes it wasn't put into the action the best way it could have been. You know, th- those sounds like just ring really true for me. And I love, you know, Bruce Springsteen with synthesizers. I love Joni Mitchell with like the minimal synths on this record and the sort of colors she paints with her weird... 90s sounding acoustic guitar way in the front just snapping and popping it's aged really well for me personally yeah i mean i think maybe one reason why it ages well is that there really is so much going on 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 those records in terms of the musicianship and like the lyrics and 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 the way that, that that they're produced like compared with maybe a more straightforward indie rock record you know where the instrumentation isn't quite as sophisticated or it's just more of like a kind of like a, a plug in and play and hit record type production. Um, you're, you're probably going to hear everything that you need to hear, like on the first or second listen. Whereas like a record like night ride home, there are the, there are all the, there, there are like little subtle touches that happen in every song that you don't really appreciate it right away until like you've heard this album like 20 times and it, I think it just makes it breathe and live longer for that reason. I mean, I love the immediate style of records, too. Uh, I mean, that has its place. But I don't know. These more sort of like, again, sitting in your minivan record and watching the sun go down after you drop your kids off at soccer practice type albums, you know, they really do age well, I think. And, uh, you know, better than you would have expected. Yeah, I don't know if I should be scared that I'm enjoying adult contemporary more or enjoying it, but uh, the matter of fact is I'm getting older, and these records are speaking uh, to me all the time. There's so much life in them, and they keep going, and I'm stoked that they exist, you know, and I'm glad that people are recognizing them more and more. Obviously, you know, streaming and YouTube or whatever brings it all to life, but, you know, all these records that were swept under the rug as, you know, dinosaurs or whatever in the 90s, they just sound fantastic to me now, and I... Honest to God, I think it's some of Joni Mitchell's best work. Probably my third favorite record of hers out of her massive discography, which most of it is pretty amazing. Yeah, I would, I mean, to me, I would slot it in with like those those five records that I mentioned from like her glory period, like that 71 to 76, like all those records are so good. And then I put Night Ride Home and, and probably even Turbulent Indigo like in with those albums. Like 
you know, if I was telling yeah. someone to listen to Joni Mitchell, and I'm gonna sneak in those late '70s records too, just as like you don't want to listen to those right away, but if you're already kind of sucked into the world of Joni, like listen to those, and of course those early, you know, the the, the records that predate Blue are also great. Like Ladies of the Canyon, I think is a really great record. And, yeah, I mean those those '70s greats records just scream like anything is possible when you listen to them. You know, just like new heights of music and new heights of living can be reached when you listen to those records and like you, what she's singing about, just, you know, anything's fucking possible. The world is so goddamn big and I'm going to see it all. I'm going to conquer it. Whereas, you know, these later records like this, Turbulent Indigo and I Read Home being the best examples are just like, you know, I, I sort of did everything I wanted to do. I'm just making music now because I, I have to and I love it. I still have a lot to say. They're just an absolutely beautiful, tranquil moments of her career. Just the best come down records of her career for sure it's just so nice and i feel like i'd be remiss not to say quick you know Joni mitchell uh she turned 75 in november and uh she of course had a brain aneurysm in 2015 and she's been recovering from that ever since the i think this was in a tweet like david crosby mentioned that she's like just learning how to walk like i think he had a tweet like in november where he said that, that Joni is like still just learning how to walk. I, I, I think she was seen publicly in 2016, like at a, at some jazz concert. I can't remember who the artist was, but you know she's been kind of visible here and there. But uh, just want to send good vibes out to Joni Mitchell. Uh, you know she's a very strong woman, great artist, and uh, I hope she's around for a much longer period of time because the world needs you, Joni. We need you in the world, so. Just want to send out yeah, some to, good vibes to out think to about, Think about an artist that big and a, a life that big kind of being restricted by some sort of physical disability is fucking heartbreaking because her music just sends people all over, so I, I wish her good vibes. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, man, I wish you good vibes, too, getting back on the road, and uh, good luck in Canada bringing music to the Canadians. The home of Joni Mitchell. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Perfect. <laughs> All right, man. Always a pleasure. Yeah, that was that was amazing. I can't believe. Yeah, I've never had a fifty-minute conversation about night ride home before. I didn't know I needed it this bad. Yeah, exactly. All right, man. Take care. Thank you very much, Stephen. All right, that was me and Riley getting into it, talking about Joni Mitchell, talking about a lot of other middle-aged rockers, you know, who had a great time in the '90s. And look, I'm not. I'm not embarrassed to say that I like to pour myself a nice rosé and, you know, listen to uh, some adult contemporary records that came out in the 90s made by some of the greatest songwriters of all time. You know, like, why not? You know, treat yourself. So (laughs) I recommend that you do the same. Got to give a shout out to the man who makes it happen, Derek Madden. Thank you, Derek, for everything you do on this show. Got to give a shout out to Josh Copperman, who wrote our theme song. Thank you, Josh. And of course, thank you to our Celebration Rock listeners. Uh, we wouldn't be here without you. I should do. Uh, I should warn you guys that we are about to go on hiatus. Uh, we always go on hiatus in the early part of the year, January and February. Uh, our last episode of uh, this year is December 17th. And then, yeah, we're going to take a little vacation, but we will be back again in 2019 for you. So make sure that you are back again next week. That is our last episode of the year. It's going to be our big year-end episode. It's going to be me and Ian Cohen counting down our favorite records of 2019 because we all need another list in our lives. <laughs> you know, So 
be back for that. It's going to be great. And uh, thanks again for listening uh, this week. Take it easy. On the Westwood One Podcast Network. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.